The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Gia Kokotakis with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for July 15th, 2023. This week, Lawfare featured coverage of a Louisiana judge's decision to prohibit certain Biden administration officials from talking to social media companies in response to alleged First Amendment violations over censoring speech about the integrity of the 2020 election, the COVID-19 pandemic, and more. The ruling highlights First Amendment challenges when moderating content, as well as the complex relationship between the federal government and social media companies. For today's archive episode, I picked an episode from December 8, 2020, in which Alan Rosenstein and Benjamin Wittes sat down with Kyle Langbart to discuss how the First Amendment should and should not apply to major internet platforms' content moderation decisions. I'm Alan Rosenstein, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, December 8th, 2020. Yesterday, Lawfare released the first paper in its Digital Social Contract paper series. For each paper, I'll be doing a podcast interview with the author. And today, my guest is law professor Kyle Langvart of the University of Nebraska College of Law. His paper, Platform Speech Governance in the First Amendment, a User-Centered Approach, examines how the First Amendment should and shouldn't apply to the content moderation decisions of major internet platforms. But first, a brief conversation with Lawfare Editor-in-Chief Ben Wittes, where we discuss the paper series as a whole. It's the Lawfare Podcast, December 8th, the first digital social contract paper series interview, Kyle Langbart on platform speech and the First Amendment. So, Alan, before we get started with the first episode of this series, let's talk a little bit about the larger project here. What is the Digital Social Contract paper series? The goal of this paper series is to do what Lawfare's always done, um, which is to analyze the really interesting questions at the intersection of law and public policy and national security uh, and technology, but to do it in a larger scope and in a, in a longer form. And in particular, the reason we're calling it the digital social contract is because generally when we think of public policy, we think of the two most important actors being uh, the people on the one hand and then the government on the other, right? And that is traditionally what we think of as the social contract. The people come together to create this government that implements its uh, preferences for them. But when it comes increasingly to issues of technology and technological advancement, there's another entity that is also really important and plays almost an independent third role. And that is large technology companies and one can say the sort of technology industry as a whole. 
And so we thought it'd be really interesting to think through some um, emerging policy issues and legal issues uh, through this lens of, on the one hand, you have the people, on the other hand, you have the government, and sort of on the third hand, you have these uh, technology companies and the technology industry and, and researchers and academics and nonprofits, all of whom play an increasingly important role. And that's what uh, we're going to uh, focus on with this paper series. So what are the range of topics that this is going to cover? I mean, you know, the themes that you're describing here potentially cover a huge range of ground. On the other hand, they, they exclude some things that Lawfare has historically been interested. So how do you understand the scope of the paper series? For me, I prefer to understand it as broadly as possible, just because I think it's uh, more fun that way. I, I want to spread the scope as, as much as possible. So maybe the best way is just to describe what the initial set of, of papers is going to be about. Our first paper is uh, about uh, technology companies and their First Amendment rights uh, or lack thereof. Uh, another paper is about cryptocurrencies and the effect that uh, that's going to have on money laundering. The following paper is about uh, COVID apps and why they have not been uh, particularly successful so far and how they can be made more successful in the future. We're going to have more papers after this discussing a, a wide range of, of uh, additional topics. But the goal was to uh, cast our net pretty broadly, um, in part because technology is becoming more and more central across a wide variety of different policy areas. Finally, readers of this initial paper will notice a disclosure concerning Facebook. What is the relationship between this paper series and Facebook? So the paper series is supported um, with funding from Facebook, and we appreciate that, um, obviously, very much. But we were very careful um, in setting up this, this series to make sure that um, Facebook uh, did not have any um, editorial role in picking the uh, authors or in picking the topics or in reviewing any of, of, of the work. Um, so Facebook is a funder. But again, it plays no um, substantive role. And, and that's also very much what Facebook wanted. And so to the extent that readers are inclined to dismiss this paper series as a Facebook-sponsored uh, thing, what is your advice to them? You know, obviously they can do so uh, if, if they want, but I would uh, urge them to keep an, an open mind. And, and I think that they will see um, as they read these papers that there's a really broad variety of views and that the funding source is uh, completely independent from the positions taken by these authors. And with that, let's go on with the first discussion. It makes intuitive sense that when individuals speak online, they're exercising their First Amendment rights. But as you point out, uh, large platforms have also been making arguments about what constitutes their own speech. And in particular, they've argued that their content moderation decisions are a kind of speech that should be protected by the First Amendment. Now, you argue, I think, very convincingly in your paper against this. But before we get into your argument, can you just explain what the argument is for the uh, tech platform's position and where it comes from? Yeah, well, so the, the argument that the platforms make is that when they decide whether either to host content or to take content down, they're engaging in a kind of editorial decision-making that's similar to what a newspaper does. You hear the word curation used a lot. And so there's a, a classic case called Miami Herald versus Tornillo, 
where the Supreme Court said that that kind of editorial decision-making counts as a form of speech in itself. And the government can't step in to regulate that kind of editorial decision-making, even if we can show, as in the case of a newspaper, that the editor may have a kind of bottleneck position in the market. So, you know, the old newspapers tended to have kind of a monopolistic market position within their geographical region. The court said that kind of monopoly power just isn't good enough to authorize the state to step in. So you can see why this argument would be pretty attractive to the tech platforms. You know, they're, they're also in a kind of quasi-monopolistic bottleneck kind of position, but they would say, hey, look, we're exercising editorial discretion and the fact that we're heavy hitters just is not a good enough reason for the government to override that. And is this an argument that they've been making and winning on, or is this just an argument that has been circulating? Well, it's it, it's an argument that's been out there for a while for, for search platforms. And search platforms have won on this argument, at least in lower courts. The Supreme Court hasn't decided this. There are also some lower court cases that kind of comment on this argument in the context of content moderation on social media. Now, this is litigation where, for example, you have a social media user who is claiming that the platform is like a public forum that's subject to First Amendment limitations. You know, not not real well represented, not real well argued. But courts have said things kind of offhandedly to the effect that, you know, the, the platforms really have their own First Amendment rights here to speak. And so what would the practical effect of recognizing the First Amendment rights of platforms be? So I, I'm thinking there are rules, you know, in particular in the intellectual property and the copyright context where platforms have to take down copyrighted material that's been shared illegally. And, and I don't get the sense that they'd be able to respond to that by saying, but we have a First Amendment right to carry pirated movies and music. So, so in, in what way does the, the First Amendment argument disable the sorts of content moderation that, that you would want the government to consider being able to, to do? Well, so, I mean, first of all, the, you kind of have to take the copyright context and, and set it aside a little bit. So, you know, a newspaper wouldn't have the right to carry third-party copyrighted content un, under the First Amendment. And on top of that, we have laws like the Digital Millennium Copyright Act that impose certain burdens on the platform to actually go and take down copyrighted content once it's been flagged. Now, the court's generally more tolerant of that kind of heavy-handed intervention if we're talking about copyright. Copyright concerns are treated as, as kind of outside the ordinary run of First Amendment litigation. But let's say that we had a type of law that required platforms to handle other kinds of content differently. So if you had a law like Nets DG in, in Germany, for example, a bad law in, in all kinds of ways, but a law that required platforms to identify and take down content that was manifestly illegal. Or say that you had a law that required platforms to leave certain types of speech up, you know, not to discriminate against certain viewpoints or whatever. I think in, in either case, the platform would say you're interfering with our editorial discretion. And what that means is you are changing the content of our speech. Now, in, in First Amendment law, 
if the law tries to change or, or regulate the content of a person's speech, then we apply this standard called strict scrutiny, which you know I'm sure lots of listeners here are familiar with, but the government has to have a compelling governmental purpose to regulate and its means have to be narrowly tailored to accomplishing that purpose. So basically, any time that the government tried to step in and set rules for what we call content moderation, we would apply this strict scrutiny standard, no matter what kind of governmental interference we're looking at. And, and that would presumably just make it much, much harder than for the government to be able to do that. So you know, even if the government could occasionally win under this standard, it would just be a huge impediment to the sorts of active legislation and regulation that we tend to think about when we think of government action. Is that the idea? Yeah, it's a, it's a really hard standard to pass. And I think what, what's important to consider here is it's the standard that would apply if the government wanted the platform to take more stuff down. But it's also the standard that would apply if the government wanted platforms to observe some kind of free speech principle, you know, it, it, to, to protect the speech rights of users. We'd be applying the same strict scrutiny standard either way, which I think is pretty problematic. So let's talk about that. So we, we've made the affirmative case for, or we've at least described the case for why tech companies have this First Amendment editorial right to control what's on their platforms. You argue that they shouldn't have this right or that the First Amendment doesn't give them this right. And so I was hoping you could explain that. Is it is it a, a legal objection? Is it a policy objection? What's what's going on there? Well, it's it's kind of both, which is usually the case when we talk about when we talk about constitutional law. You know, when, when people talk about the First Amendment rights of platforms or the rights that platforms might not have, people tend to get into this trap of asking whether the platform is more like a newspaper or whether it's more like, let's say, the phone company. You know, is it the kind of entity that controls and, and edits content on the one hand, or is it the kind of entity that just lets it all pass through the way that the phone company does? And I think the basic trap when you confine yourself to those two analogies is you've already conceded at some level that you're looking at a case that's about speech. I would say that when a platform polices content in order to protect public safety, that, you know, it, it's maybe more like a mall cop. It, it doesn't mean that the platform's doing something bad or, or suspicious in First Amendment terms. I think it's just kind of orthogonal to to the First Amendment. It's it's regulating speech. It's not actually speaking. Let, let's let's talk more about this. So, you know, in your paper, you you talk a lot about how it's important to have a user centric rather than a platform centric conception of, of a First Amendment. Mm -hmm. um, I was hoping you could explain what what you mean by by that contrast. Yeah. Well, so here's the thing: even if platforms have their own First Amendment rights. It also goes without saying that users on the platforms have their own First Amendment rights. Now, that doesn't mean that if I'm a Facebook user, I can sue Facebook and Facebook has to follow the First Amendment. It doesn't mean that at all. Facebook is not a state actor. But it does mean that if the government were to step in and act as a kind of puppeteer, controlling Facebook's censorship policies, and if then I was the the victim there. You know, if Facebook took my speech down in order to follow the law, well, my First Amendment rights would be implicated there. And I would have a First Amendment right against that governmental regulation. So no matter what, 
user speech rights are already in play. Now, my view is that if we're going to try to figure out when the government can and can't regulate a platform's content moderation policies, all we really need to do is just ask about the effects downstream on that user speech. Saying that the platform has its own First Amendment right, that doesn't add anything to the analysis at all, in, in my view. What about the argument that you hear sometimes that, well, these platforms are technological entities and their platforms are run using complex computer systems and those computer systems reflect some expressive choices that the programmers have made. This is the, the so-called code is speech argument that started in the 90s and, and is occasionally cited. You know, is that something that, that tech companies should be able to, to, to use as a, a shield against uh, regulation? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty skeptical of these of these arguments. Now, on on the one hand, you know, you can say that, yeah, the the platform is maybe expressing certain values that it has, if it sets a policy that it's going to take down terrorist content. You know, it thinks terrorism is bad. You can also say that the platform is is handling speech, and and maybe that makes it feel a little bit like the platform is is speaking indirectly. But the basic problem with that argument is you could say the same thing anytime anybody regulates or censors speech. So when the government adopts a law that would censor speech, for example, say you can't engage in incitement, you know, we could say that the government is engaged in some kind of a messaging project. I mean, the government is saying that incitement is, is bad. The government is also uh, handling speech in much the same way that a platform handles speech. But, you know, the really salient aspect of what the government is doing there is, is regulatory, not expressive. And we regard it as uh, a, a form of speech regulation, not just the government communicating its message. So I would say that I would say the same thing when a platform regulates speech. Sure, at some conceptual level, maybe the, the platform is communicating something, but that's not the relevant level of, of analysis. You know, let's say, that, let's say that Google decides to open its new headquarters in Detroit, where I used to live. That's also a choice. It, it involves some degree of, of human decision-making, and it expresses certain corporate values. You know, they, they want to express their support for the business culture there in Detroit. But people recognize at a kind of common sense level that the First Amendment just can't possibly give us a sane framework for uh, regulating those kinds of business decisions. That's the, that's the way I would look at this. And, and, and so if I understand, then presumably the same would be true if the company argues that because it's acting through computer code and computer code <laughs> can be used for expressive purposes, that doesn't simply by itself turn every computer into a core site of First Amendment speech. Yeah, I think the computer code argument is even more specious than the than the editorial argument. The basis for the computer code argument, going back to the original case law in the 1990s, was that computer code, or at least source code, is a kind of language. And so therefore, anything expressed in computer code, or at least source code, is a form of speech. Well, that's not the way that we treat actual language. I mean, there are all kinds of things we do with languages like English, 
that we don't regard as speech that implicates the First Amendment. If you and I make a contract, for example, so the the notion that anything that is expressed in any kind of language counts as speech, I think leads to just kind of ludicrous outcomes. And And actually, if you look at the case law that would apply this standard, you can see that the courts really have bent over backwards to water down the kind of analysis that they that they apply to these computer code as speech claims. Do you think there's any context in which what technology companies do on their platforms is speech, is their own legitimate First Amendment speech? Or or are they all, should we in always and in all circumstances think of them analogous to your phone company, right? Which mm-hmm. obviously hosts your speech, but is, itself is never really speaking. Yeah, I think there's I think there's definitely situations where the platform speaks. So if if a platform puts out a press release, that's speech. The Google Doodle, I mean that's a that's a form of speech. I would be willing to say that if Twitter tags a, a Trump tweet, that's speech. I mean, I could see somebody making an argument that maybe we should look at that as more more regulatory, but I think that that basically looks like speech. Facebook has the banner on the top during the elections that says the the votes are still being counted. That's speech. It's like a something a, a TV network would do. But I think when we really go off the off the rails with this, is where a platform isn't putting out something that we would ordinarily recognize as a message, but instead taking down other people's speech. And especially if if you have a, a a single platform that is managing the speech of like two billion users, you know, like Facebook, that's a point where we could say, look, even if we are kind of sympathetic to the idea that the platform speaks and expresses its values through these censorship policies, that that's just an interest that's overbalanced so many times over by these two billion other speakers that we should disregard it as kind of trivial. To, to me, one of the hardest areas here is is what to do about the algorithms that these tech companies use to either promote certain users and certain posts and then sort of demote other users. Because on the one hand, if Twitter or Facebook had a, you know, editor's feature uh, sidebar mm-hmm. where they picked out their favorite tweets of the day and, you know, if you can go to the Apple app store or the, the Google store, and they'll do editor's choice apps of the day. That strikes me as, again, quintessentially First Amendment speech of the platforms themselves. Absolutely. And then if you accept that, then maybe you can argue that, well, then what they do algorithmically is just an extension of that. They've just trained a bunch of their computers to replicate their judgment, and they can then uh, deploy that to scale across their billions of users. But now we get into the problem you just ran into, which is now we seem to be heavily overweighting whatever speech interests platforms have. So is this just a matter of in the law, we have to draw some some arbitrary boundaries sometimes and maybe the line between individual versus algorithmic decision-making um, is is that line? You know, even if it's not conceptually perfect, it's, it's the most workable line that we can draw in the law? Um, that, that's a... That's a good question. I mean, I, I think it's important to find some kind of a workable line. And, you know, I, I'm not sure that I would draw the line at algorithmic speech. I can imagine some some contexts where a, an algorithm could be used to produce 
art. I mean, that kind of thing has, has taken place. Let's say most sports pages today on the internet, my understanding is that they produce a lot of algorithmically generated content. You know, I'm, I'm fine with, I'm fine with that counting as speech, I think. But I think what, what's really important is not to mistake regulation for a form of speech. And these, these platforms, whether we want to compare them to states or not, I think are clearly involved in regulation or, or governance of speech. If we're going to recognize that kind of activity as speech, then whatever the theoretical merits of the argument, we have in practice set up a kind of a separation of powers where a few private companies are permitted to regulate speech in a way that the government would never, ever be able to. That, I think, is, is what we have to avoid. Ignition sequence start. Welcome to Government's Future Frontiers. We're talking about a multi-billion dollar industry, one on which we've come to depend for almost everything we do, space. We'll be examining the challenges, the opportunities, the pitfalls, and the benefits of all things space-related. Government's Future Frontiers from Deloitte Insights. Remember to follow and subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills it can help you be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. 
Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And delete me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web, and in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once, because the information will get back into the systems. It does it, and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports, and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. So let's say we've drawn the line somewhere. We've identified some stuff that is speech. We've identified a bunch of stuff that isn't speech. And in particular, we've said that, okay, a bunch of what platforms do when they are regulating what users can and cannot say is not going to count as their own, which is to say the platform's own First Amendment speech. Mm -hmm. That then creates a space for government regulation. And there are three types that you talk about. So I'm going to describe them and then I'd, I'd like to, to talk about each one of them in turn a little bit. 
So the, the first type of government regulation is requirements that platforms take certain content down. The second type is rules about how the platforms themselves are designed. Um, and then the third uh, is kind of the flip side, which is rules that limit what platforms can remove from their own sites. Um, mm -hmm. So limits on platform censorship. So let's talk about each of these in turn. So on the first proposal or the first kind of regulation, the takedown mandates, what are the sorts of things that the government might want internet platforms to remove? And what First Amendment issues does that raise, either, again, for the platforms themselves or in the absence of any platform rights for, for users? Mm -hmm. Well, I think the first things that government might set out to have removed would be in the bucket of incitement to lawless action or misinformation that could lead to, you know, real world physical harm. So false claims about coronavirus, I think, fall into fall into this kind of bucket, but also conceivably certain kinds of for example, hate speech, you know, the kind of stuff that led to, that went viral and led to ethnic cleansing and in, in Myanmar. You know, the, these are the kinds of circumstances where I could see the government claiming some kind of interest in, in stepping in and, and making sure this stuff doesn't go viral and, and cause horrible real world consequences. Now, traditionally, the government has not had very much room to regulate this kind of harm-causing speech at all. There's a standard called the Brandenburg standard that's just extremely demanding. I mean, the, the government can really only step in in cases where a person has used explicit language exhorting somebody to, to violate the law and where it's likely to happen and, and where it's imminent that it's going to happen. That seems like a, a very, very restrictive standard, I think, for, for the social media environment. And the government would probably try to go beyond that. But I think that's the, the first kind of content that the government would try to force platforms to, to take down, content that would lead to real world harm in the short term. And, and under your system, would there be any First Amendment limits to this? I mean, if it, mm -hmm. you know, what we've gotten to in this conversation is that technology companies should not be able to claim the First Amendment themselves. So who, who is going to defend us against government censorship under a regime like this? Well, so this is, I think, kind of an, an unsettling question to think about. And I can maybe back up and give a little bit of broader perspective here. My overall view is that these platforms may have warped the underlying physics of speech to such an extent that our ordinary assumptions about the marketplace of ideas, the freedom of speech, just no longer work. You know, this is a, a, a really kind of dark place. And I suspect that over the very long run, the societies that, that really make it and manage to preserve a system of, of robust free speech will be societies that somehow figure out a way to restructure or even eradicate these platforms as we know them today, you know, ad-driven social platforms. Now, with that being said, you know, if we're going to assume that 
we're going to continue to live with with Facebook, Twitter, you know, these these ad driven platforms that rely on on viral speech, then I think it's still worth our while to figure out how much of the First Amendment we can salvage and apply as a kind of rule of law. And so if we're going to talk about the way that the First Amendment would apply to these to these takedowns, what we have to do is look at certain types of First Amendment doctrines that appear almost impossibly strict and figure out if there's a way that we can kind of water them down responsibly to make them workable. I think the, the first major roadblock that we run into is the prior restraint doctrine. You know, traditionally there is a heavy presumption against the government stepping in and requiring that speech be censored or, or removed, preventing people from speaking. Well, let's say that the government does want platforms to go in and identify certain types of unlawful or, or dangerous content and take them down. That's a dangerous place to be because if the government has put financial incentives, say liability incentives on the platform to remove this stuff, then the platforms are going to tend to over-censor. This is a dynamic that, that Jack Balkan has called collateral censorship. What we have to do is figure out a way to create some room for, for government to do this while still retaining some protections. And, and so I think that the, the first place that I would look here, if the government wanted a platform to take stuff down, is what are called the, uh, the Manila Principles. And the, the Manila Principles are kind of like a civil society document uh, that encourage governments, among other things, to obtain a court order before certain types of content are, are going to be taken down. You know, principles that the platforms not go and determine whether the content itself is, is illegal and then step in. So I might, try to, I might try to borrow from some of these ideas from civil society. The next area where I think that you run into a problem is this doctrine about incitement and the government's limited ability to step in and penalize speech because it's dangerous or because it's likely to lead to real world harm. This can get pretty complex, but I think we have to wind up with a standard that's quite a bit more flexible than the Brandenburg standard I, I discussed earlier. I don't know how much detail you want me to get into here, but I think it's possible that we wind up with a standard that looks a lot more like the old clear and present danger standard from the early days of the First Amendment, one where there was just really a lot more flexibility for the government to penalize speech that might not lead to absolutely imminent harm, speech that might not have been intended to, to lead to harm, you know, that, that kind of thing. So that we'd, we'd have a really watered down set of rules, but it would at least be some set of rules, which I think is better than what we have today. And your paper goes into more detail on, on the content of those rules. So I'll, I'll refer listeners um, to, to that. One thing I just, I did want to clarify though, was under the, the framework that you propose, it's not as if users wouldn't still be able to argue against government 
take down orders on the basis mm-hmm. of their own First Amendment rights. So this this strikes me as an, an important point, right? All oh, yeah. you're doing, all you're doing is getting rid of the ability of technology companies to say that they have a First Amendment right against being told by the government to take something down. But users, you and me, would still presumably be able to walk into court and say, when the government told Facebook to take down all quote unquote terrorist content, that had an impact on my speech and that violated my First Amendment rights. Just to, just to make sure we're on the same page on, on that. Oh, absolutely. And this is, this is the most important point. If, if the government were to commandeer a platform, require the platform to take down my, let's say, terrorist speech, <laughs> then I would, have, I would have a right to challenge the government there. That would be my right. The platform would not have its own separate right to say that its rights had been challenged. But conceivably, the platform might be able to kind of piggyback off of, off of my rights or, or join, join the litigation. Uh, but it would be my rights that would really be central here, not the platform's. So I'm going to pass over the issue of, of platform design restrictions, um, though, again, your paper does a great job of, of talking about them. I'm going to ask us to turn briefly to the third kind of government regulation, which is the, the opposite, in a sense, of a takedown requirement. And that's a mandate to, to keep user content on the platforms. So a lot of this has come, at least recently, from conservatives who believe, not, I think, without some justification, but also in a quite exaggerated way, that Silicon Valley companies are, by their nature, not the most friendly to to conservatives, at least in terms of the internal politics of Silicon Valley employees. Now, I'm not personally convinced that Facebook and Twitter really are disproportionately censoring conservative views. Um, yeah, you know, there, might be an, there might be an exception here for the views of the president, though that's in part because he's so exceptional in <laughs> lying so often on, on social media. And I think in other ways, social media has been really helpful to, in particular, far right, far right views and far le- left views. But let's assume that there is some degree of unfriendliness towards the right. Let's say, mm-hmm. assume that there is some disproportionate censorship. I guess my first question is, um, before we get into what sorts of government policies might cure this problem, do we really even need government policies at all? Is legal intervention necessary? And I ask because lately we've seen the rise of conservative platforms like Parler, which Mm -hmm. is kind of a replacement for Twitter, or Rumble, which is, again, a replacement for YouTube. And basically what these companies do is is they, they copy a standard social network and they just impose fewer moderation on it. Right. Mm-hmm. They allow for more misinformation or they have different content standards or or you know, whatever the case is. And I'm sure that one could and that the market would create similar kinds of alternatives for far left speech if mm-hmm. the far left started worrying about censorship. So given how relatively easy it is to start your own social networking platform, the technology is not that complicated. Servers are actually pretty cheap to rent. Why not just let the market deal with this issue of ensuring that all users have some venue to express their opinion online? The internet is, after all, kind of infinite. And so do we even really need government intervention to prevent platform censorship? Yeah, well, so first of all, I I share your your skepticism about the claims that conservatives have been disproportionately censored. Now, that that being said, I think I I can empathize with conservatives' concerns here. And I think, you know, someone who's who's not a Republican, I would be 
pretty freaked out if, let's say, Walmart, or more to the point, the Mercers, owned the dominant social platform. And, and I think I would be freaked out even in the absence of specific evidence that there was viewpoint-based censorship going on already. Um, the, the, the danger just seems too severe, especially given what we know about platforms' abilities to manipulate electoral turnout and that, that kind of thing. Now, as for the, the role that markets might play, you know, I'm, I'm very skeptical that market forces have a helpful role to play here. Now, I guess the first thing that I would that I would point to is the role of network effects in entrenching the power of a, a platform like like Facebook or Twitter. It's not clear to me that these platforms are really going to be subject to meaningful market pressures from the outside. Now, I, I may be wrong about that, but I think there's at least some, some room to be skeptical. Now, I guess if there are market pressures, what kinds of market pressures are we going to look at? And, and I'm, I'll get to the, the parlor point here. The first market pressures we should look at are really market pressures that come from the ad companies, because Facebook, Twitter, you know, YouTube, what, whatever platform with free services we're talking about is really going to be an advertising platform. And my, my sense is that to the extent they respond to market pressures, the most meaningful market pressures are going to be those that come from the advertisers who pay them. Now, the advertisers may sometimes have some interest in the platform's content moderation policies. But those their interest in, in the platform's content moderation policies is mainly going to be an interest in making sure that their own advertising gets carried. They may occasionally have an interest in uh, seeing a platform improve its content moderation policies more as a kind of general policy or societal matter. But when they do, I expect that it will tend more in the direction of taking more speech down. Now, as for as for Parler, you know, is is Parler a, a kind of case study that might indicate how the how the market might call for a, a freer system of content governance? My sense on this is no. Now, first of all, I, I would say with Parler or Gab or any of these so-called free speech social media services, they're really small fry. I think Parler right now is at, at about 10 million users. And, you know, if these platforms really are just kind of leaving everything up and not really moderating much at all, then they're probably not especially enjoyable places to, to hang out, you know, unless you're from like the extreme right or something like that. As long as that's the the case, then these platforms are never going to pose a real threat to a broad-based platform like Facebook or Twitter. Now, let's say, on the other hand, that these platforms are large enough to be a major player and to threaten Facebook or Twitter's dominant position. Well, if, if that's the case, then I think we've got to start asking some real questions about what these platforms are are really up to. Now, Parler says 
that it's a platform for free speech, unbiased content moderation. But I would not take Parler at its, at its word when it says that. This is a platform that's underwritten by the Mercers. These are the, the people behind Cambridge Analytica in the 2016 election. And I think there's every reason to suspect that they're engaging in the kind of invidious content moderation practices that they would accuse a platform like Facebook of. If we do have a competition between a lot of different platforms, uh, I think it's unlikely that that's going to be a competition among users to find the platform that has the most optimal or the most liberal free speech policy. I think it's much more likely that we're going to have users competing for content moderation policies that satisfy or mollify their own ideological preferences. And that, you know, will just kind of be sort of a race to the bottom, I think. So the, the idea here would be that the reason or one reason why the government might want to impose some neutrality standards or or you know whatever it is on platforms is to avoid a situation in which you end up with a lot of basically filter bubbles like a lot mm-hmm. of different platforms you know you have one targeted to this group and that group and then no one actually ends up talking across across groups mm-hmm. and i suspect let's say that we have a bunch of filter bubble platforms that i you know, cater to people at different ends of the ideological spectrum. I think at that point, the policy conversation just kind of moves up a level. We no longer have a single platform that we expect to come in and regulate all this speech. I think people would start demanding that the state come in and regulate all this speech. Are there any First Amendment issues with the government requiring a certain level of of editorial neutrality? I mean, assuming that we've established that tech companies don't have a first amendment right mm-hmm. in in their editorial decisions you know it usually we think of the first amendment as protecting the government from restricting speech but here the government is actually trying to promote speech by restricting the ability of someone else the platform mm-hmm. to remove the speech so does the government have a a completely free reign in the sorts of neutrality uh requirements it imposes or or is there some limitation nevertheless there so first of all, and I know I know you all you already said this. We've got to be cl- very clear that we're talking about a scenario in which the platforms don't have their own speech rights. So if the platform has its own speech right, then we're at strict scrutiny. You know, the very difficult threshold to pass. If the platform isn't its own speaker, though, then the First Amendment consequences of a viewpoint neutrality standard are kind of murky. I mean, this is something that's that's really pretty unfamiliar. You know, I think at first impression, it might seem that there's no First Amendment problem at all. I mean, if all that the government is doing is requiring a platform to leave a lot more speech in place, then we could say that no one's speech has really been burdened. There's just no one who's in a position to sue or challenge it under the First Amendment. And that that's one possibility. Now, I think the thing that we've got to keep in mind is if we're talking about a scenario like this, we're talking about issues that will arise for some time going into the future. And so the way that we think about First Amendment rights is, is going to change in that time. 
it could be that a decade from now, a, a couple decades from now, the courts are more sensitive to the role that, say, trolls can play in inhibiting a person's speech. And who knows? I mean, maybe a speaker on one of these platforms could say that, look, I, I have been trying to speak, but I'm just trolled and threatened incessantly by these other other speakers on the platform. And when the government requires the platform to observe viewpoint neutrality, it therefore requires kind of indirectly inhibiting my speech. I mean, th this is not a, a theory that the courts today would adopt. But over the long term, I think it's a, it's a theory that's not obviously unreasonable. And so even something like a viewpoint neutrality standard that today might seem to be totally innocuous in First Amendment terms, might, under a different interpretation of the First Amendment, look a little more suspicious. So there's obviously a lot more uh, to talk about here, um, but I think this is a good place to end for, for now. Kyle, thanks so much for speaking with me. This is obviously an immensely complex issue, and I yeah. really appreciate you sharing your insight. Absolutely. Thanks for having me here, Alan. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. If you've liked what you've heard, please take a moment to rate the podcast or let someone know so they can enjoy it as well. This podcast is produced by Jen Patya Howell. Zachary Frank of Goat Rodeo is our audio engineer. And Sophia Yan performed our music. As always, thanks for listening. Sequence start. Welcome to Government's Future Frontiers. We're talking about a multi-billion dollar industry, one on which we've come to depend for almost everything we do, space. We'll be examining the challenges, the opportunities, the pitfalls, and the benefits of all things space-related. Government's Future Frontiers from Deloitte Insights. Remember to follow and subscribe so that you don't miss an episode.